We're going to read Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My message is going to be looking at really uh, the, the first few chapters of Jeremiah, but this will be setting the tone for, uh, for what we'll look at. And here's what we read there. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. I was a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held, were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? They strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a, a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Katim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have changed their Exchange their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O Jerusalem. Or be appalled at this, O heavens. And shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we pause just for a moment to ask you to be here, and without the operation of your spirit, uh, this ends up being a fruitless exercise. So we pray that he would come and apply this word to our hearts, this message from the book of Jeremiah, that we would attend to it, that you would lasso our thoughts so they may wander and bring them back to attend to what is being said here for the good of your people, and uh, do what you desire. Uh, we know we do come through these doors with a whole different set of matters weighing our heart, perhaps, or even kind of wondering where we stand with, with God. Um, and I pray that you'd make that clear as we look into your word today and that you would draw hearts that are distant near you and hearts that are weary that you would give uh, true joy to them. So may, us, may we attend to these words of Jeremiah. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jeremiah is uh, called the weeping prophet. And if you've read along the way, you're starting to get a sense of why that's the case. You'll get even more in our, in our reading as, as Jeremiah has a, a conspiracy even just a few days ago if you're doing the Bible reading with us against him. And things are just going to get worse for him. And the reason they go so poorly is because He's bringing a message to God's people that was not very popular at the time. And that's the case for so many people who are called prophets in the Bible. 
And his particular message was pretty straightforward like so many. You've gone astray, but there's an opportunity here for you to return to me. That seems like a pretty good message, but the, the underlying assumption when you say return to me is that you've gone astray. And to admit that you've gone astray is difficult for so many people, especially when it means making some sort of a change. But this has been going on for a little while. There have been all kinds of prophets even coming before him predicting that Israel and Judah, Israel the ten tribes to the north, Judah the two to the south, if they didn't change their ways, things were going to end poorly. And in fact, that's what's happened. So as you probably know, the ten northern tribes called Israel fell in 722, that's BC, to Assyria. And then in 586, the southern tribes, collectively known as Judah, just two of them, uh, Judah and Benjamin, are going to be exiled in 586. Now, Jeremiah is writing in, in, in the 600s sometime, so just before that second wave of exile is going to occur. And so he is trying to tell them something is coming unless you change your ways. It can still be avoided. But we know historically there was probably a remnant that God's constantly is constantly responding to God that was uh, certainly doing that, but on the collective whole, this nation would reject it. This message of uh, Jeremiah and so many others. So you end up with hardship and weeping and sorrow and pain because you're not listening to what God has said to do. And how do you get to a point like this where you've lost pretty much everything? Because they're going to lose everything. You know, historically, we've already seen it. They came from Egypt. They were led by Moses and then Joshua into the promised land. And they've been uh, thriving in many respects, although there's this cycle of going against God. They have received what was promised, and now they're about to lose everything. They're going to be foreigners, strangers, exiles in a, in a, a different land. And how do, you, how do you get there? Well, it's a process, right? <laughs> it doesn't just happen overnight. It's a series of steps along the way. And people who are calling you to say, don't go down that path, but you continue to listen, and you keep going in that way, you end up losing everything. I mean, this is a graphic demonstration of what happens, not just on the national level, but individually as well. And in chapter 2, what we, uh, what we found as we read is that basically what happens in this process is a rejection of God. You just begin to reject God. What fault did you, your fathers find in me? That they strayed so far from me. This is chapter 2, verse 5. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. So the idea here is that you were walking the right way and then you just strayed. You just kind of wandered and didn't listen to people saying, get back on the right path, get back on the right path. And this happened not only over months and years, but decades and generations as well. This led us to this point. And instead they followed worthless idols, not the God who created everything, but things that they themselves have fashioned and created. And they exchanged then the glory, the heaviness, and the weightiness of God. That word glory in the Bible means something that's heavy, that's weighty, for worthless idols that are just chaff and blow in the wind. Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they're not gods at all? But my people have changed their glory, their heaviness, their weightiness, their actual substantive, real God for worthless idols. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is exactly what Isaiah said. And again, if you didn't listen to Pastor Zimmerman's message from a couple of weeks ago, let me encourage you to do that. There's only one God. There's only one true God. All these other things are idols all around. 
return to him. That was the message of Isaiah in that chunk that he took. And Jeremiah is saying exactly the same thing here, if you have ears to hear. He lists two sins that we read about in verse 13. And this is what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah. Here are the two sins that you've committed. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So on the one hand, you turn from God, who happens to be the source of living water. I mean, I wish we had a water fountain right here that has that continual fresh water that's coming out. He's saying, that's what I'm like. I'm like that, that, that fountain that's dug down deep, maybe fed by a well, spring water that can never be tainted, that's just so refreshing. And you know what that's like if you're super thirsty to drink great water. On the other hand, what we tend to do, instead of say, God says, this is what it looks like to drink deeply from the spring of living water, what we tend to do instead as we stray is to create our, dig our own little well and pour water in that, and it, it doesn't hold very well. So uh, I could have brought, if I could, a, a water fountain, then over here, uh, a little pot of water that we continue to pour into that gets bacteria in it and, and fungus and disgusting stuff, and maybe say it's a little bowl of dirty water here, and I say, which do you want to drink from? Come on up, you're thirsty. And pretty much every one of us will go there and look and say, well, that looks pretty good, but I think I got a better idea. <laughs> Down the disgusting water and you're sick. And you're like, how dare you make me sick, God? You haven't drunk from the spring of living water. You've created your own pathway and said, I think that's a lot better. And I've made it very clear to you, that's going to hurt you. I mean, that's a, a fairly clear picture that Jeremiah is, is, is giving of what it looks like. And you can reject that if you want. You can say, I don't have ears to hear that stuff. But God says, this is how I've designed you. You have been designed in a certain way to come and to drink from this living water. This spring, but you make your own cisterns. You, you make your own definitions about good and bad, about what fulfills me. And you pursue those, and eventually it's going to be to your harm. It, period, never, period, works, period. <laughs> when you turn from God as the source, you have to come up with your own solution. It works for a time. And one of those brick broken cisterns is actually dealing with the problem of sin itself. We all know that we've done something wrong and that, there's, that we're, we need to... to Find a solution to the brokenness, emptiness, pain, sorrow, whatever the case may be. And God has it, but he says, you're trying to deal with this on your own. And then if you've read a little bit more, Jeremiah, you know, down in, in verse 22, he deals with this. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. You say, okay, look, this is one of the broken cisterns. I know I'm broken, I have a problem, but I can fix it on my own. I can take a shower. I can delete a history. <laughs> I can uh, hide something, whatever the case may be. But it will never deal with the stain of your guilt. Or eventually you have what's called a seer conscience. You just don't care anymore. You still haven't really dealt with the issue. And we're striving. We, we have a problem. We want to fix it. We do it our own way. It never gets to the real issue. And the exile that God's people are experiencing soon will be a direct result of that. They traded the freedom and the joy that comes 
from walking with God, for the sorrow and the pain that comes from rejecting him and creating their own pathways for life. It's a desperate attempt to find identity. Who am I, really? Value, do I matter? And purpose, why am I here of, apart from God? It's going to end up this way. But they still make excuses. I mean, in verse 35, same chapter, yet in spite of all this, you say, hey, I'm innocent. You know what? I maybe felt bad for a little while and tried to do some things, didn't cover up, but the more I think about it, I haven't done anything wrong. Not that bad. Everybody else is doing the same thing. It's not that big of a deal, right? I'm, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. But God says, I will pass judgment on you. Because you say I've not sinned. I mean, those who say, I'm not guilty, are the ones who are standing in the gravest judgment of all. They have, says God, the brazen look of a prostitute who no longer has any shame. That's chapter 3, verse 3. You just committed so much sin, you don't care anymore. It's not that. I have no more shame associated with this. Used to, but don't anymore. Israel to the north became an object lesson for Judah in chapter 3, but Judah did not seem to care or learn. In spite of all this, verse 10, chapter 3, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. You know, so here's the object lesson, 722, they go down. He says, stop changing your ways. And sometimes it appears they're saying, okay, we're doing it. We'll line up. But it's just going through the motions. You know what that's like. There's no real change internally. It's just as long as you can get some of the benefits of being good on the outside. But inside, no change. And God knows that. Because you can't hide anything from him. Is it hopeless then? I hope you feel a little hopeless right now. <laughs> I mean, Jeremiah is like casting this dismal picture. Well, we know it's not. Because against the backdrop of apathy, I don't care, idolatry, I'm going to worship something different, pride, I'm, there's no problem with me, abandonment, forget it, I don't, I'll go a different way. God always offers an alternate pathway, always. The question is, are you going to take it? What do we do then? What do we do with this? Well, Jeremiah gives a call here in verse 14. He says, return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of your backsliding. Two very interesting images here. He says, if you are willing to admit that you have done You've been going the wrong way. There is a way to, to do it. Return to me. Come to me. I'm like a husband, a faithful husband, who even though my, my, my spouse has been unfaithful, will receive back. It, go back and listen to, to Brandon Woodard's, Pastor Woodard's passage, uh, where he was dealing with the prodigal son, the father who's waiting for the return. But you know what? That son couldn't know the love of the father till he returned. He was often in misery. This is just like Israel and Judah. But until that son returned, he couldn't know what the father was going to do. Couldn't experience that love. And there's that other picture here. Return faithless people. I'll cure you. So not only is he like a husband, but he is like a physician. 
I mean, any one of you, you could use a different analogy. You've got a car that's broken and you're not a mechanic or you don't have the tools. Where do you go if you need to have transportation? You're going to keep driving that thing? You can't do it. You've got to get somebody to fix it. You need the cure. If you're sick, I know you're stubborn, you're macho, you won't see the doctor, but you're, you're laying in bed about to die, someone's going to come to you because somebody who cares enough to say, don't be prideful, get some help, will call 911 and then they go. There's a, somebody, if you have a problem, you're looking for somebody to fix it. God says, that's what I deal with. I'll cure you of this constant backsliding that he sees in them. He's willing to cure their sickness. So maybe you say, okay, fine. Um, yeah, uh, what do we do? Return to God? What in the world does that even mean? You know, how, how does that, what does that look like? Sign me up. I'd like to return or maybe someday in the future it'd be good to have a couple of notes and perhaps remember this unbelievable sermon. What, what do you do? Well, the first thing you need to do in chapter 3, verse 22, after he says that, is this people respond and they say, yes, we will come to you. That's step one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I recognize I've been, I've been satisfied with broken cisterns. I don't want to be anymore. The first thing you have to do is say, yeah, okay. Yes. It can even be very, very small. Filled maybe with, with doubt and disbelief. But at least a small yes that says, okay, we will come to you. That's how these people are responding to this dismal picture. But the other thing they do in that same chapter, in verse 25, is, is live with their sin a little bit. It's, let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We've sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From our youth till this day, we've not obeyed the Lord our God. I mean, part of saying, okay, I'll come back to you, is feeling the weight of the sin you've been wallowing in for so long. It's, it, it's, it's an amazing gift that God gives us a forgiveness, but there's a tremendous price associated with it. And Jeremiah, the people that day, say, we're going to sit for a while and not just put a little band-aid over this, but recognize there's been real hurt caused over a long period of time. And what's fascinating to me about this is it's not just you. I mean, they're owning up for the sins of people before them. The sins of their fathers. Think about what that means for some of the issues. of We have even discussions with respect to racial reconciliation. Is there some implication here? Wasn't me. Well, wasn't them maybe either, but they're saying, we're going to lie in sorrow over the sins of those who've been committed even before. It's just not easy. Oh, yeah, it's good. And this is part of what it looks like returning to God, saying yes, but then lying down for a little while. So you experience the pain and the suffering and the gravity of sin. It's abject honesty. It's owning up. I know I've told, I, I used to tell my sons more often, part of what it means, I think, to be a man of God, a person of God, but for them, their guys, is to say, when you've done something wrong, admit it. That's huge. Be a man. Admit it. Own up to it. This is feeling the sting and the weight of crafting broken cisterns. 
No more making excuses, no more justifying, no more hiding shame, getting it all out there, and then experiencing the heaviness of that reality. And this is the feeling of shame that needs to be felt. But there's an action that moves toward change that alters the trajectory of life as well. You don't just sit there in sackcloth and ashes forever and beat yourself up. I think there is some sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And I think as a, as a culture, we don't do that very well. We want just quick responses. But then you do need to act. Because God himself says, put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray. Look, change. Do something different. Don't be the same. Come to me, the stream of living water, instead of continuing to make your own cisterns. What Jeremiah is trying to show is what I would call the sinfulness of sin. And that's not my phrase. Some people, fathers from the past have said that too. We don't really understand the sinfulness of sin. Most often, sin for us, that is, going against God's ways, what, what we're concerned about is, you know, uh, the, 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 the judgment that comes, the consequences, instead of just the sinfulness of sin itself. I think we live in a culture that does a lot of justifying uh, and doesn't really feel the weight of going astray from God or sin. Here's a little quote from, uh, from a guy who had a pretty good grasp on sin, I think. This was written back in 1741. Strap in for this. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. In other words, obviously the full judgment's not here, so you can say, ah, I'm good. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt, the stain of your guilt that Jeremiah was talking about in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Anybody know what that comes from? Jonathan Edwards. Sinners. In the hands of an angry God. Which is an evangelistic sermon. And he's talking to people who are like, man, eh, sin's not the big of a deal. He says, it's much bigger than you know. I mean, God's grace, his mercy, his mere pleasure of holding it back is the only thing keeping you from full judgment. He paints a pretty strong picture of how dark and hopeless empty cisterns can be. You know, I, I think, you know, we have teenagers as well, so every, every, I've observed that every generation tends to look at the next and say, oh my goodness, this generation's so lost. And it's, it's true, it's a unique generation now, too, with the information that is accessible, the accessibility to, to content that is beyond the scope of my imagination of what it means to be a young mind being developed by that reality. It's, it is something new. The normalization of sin is very obvious. 
But it's easy for us to give them a bad rap, and I'm not talking about Annalie Chapa. Very few people will understand that reference, but what I mean is, you know, to, to older people to look back and say, well, that generation, we've really gone, our nation's gone astray, blah, 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 it'll never be the same. And that's, that's true, there's some reality, some development of that stuff, but do you know what we're reading right now in the book of Jeremiah? How long ago was this written? Anybody know? 600 BC, 2600 years ago. And the same kind of stuff's going on. What about the Garden of Eden, perfect father, perfect environment? <laughs> Adam and Eve sin, they're, they're cast out, and within a few generations, God says, there's so much wickedness here, I'm destroying the entire earth. So, there, you know, there, yeah, this generation's got issues. But every generation has. You think, what do you hear talk, people talk about going to the New Testament church? Read the book of 1 Corinthians later. And see if you really want to go back to what was happening inside the church. Immorality of the kind that if it happened right here, it would be front page news and everybody would say those hypocrites. And they're the beloved church that God had called, wrestling with sin. I, I'm just trying to say, as much as we can say, oh, that next generation, every generation has got its unique issues. Every, every generation is trying to wrestle with these things. But the problem isn't with the generation. Because the issue is something that's been there apparently from the beginning. And Jeremiah knows this as well. If you continue doing this reading, it's, it's fantastic. Because today's reading is Jeremiah 17. And you know what he says there? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is saying, the real problem's inside. And so the issue that he needs to get to is what's happening inside. This is the same for every generation. We can deal with the things on the outside, but unless God gets to the heart, you can forget it. That's, that's what he cares about. And Jeremiah knows that. The, the real problem is that your heart is deceitful. You are a master at making excuses. You can justify. You can deflect. You can hide. You are fantastic at that because of sin. The same sin that Jonathan Edwards said will hold you guilty, justly, to receive the wrath of God is the sin that you're so good at creating. You're like a, a, a Minecraft expert at creating worlds of darkness and secrecy and justification and finding your identity in things that really don't matter, that are hay and stubble, we are fantastic at creating broken cisterns. Every single one of us, not just the next generation, it's the guy standing in front of you. I do it too. Except for mine looks a lot better, especially as a pastor. It's subtle. And ministry can be the same thing. I don't care what you do. We all have hearts that have gone desperately astray. And if you think, man, okay, I'm convinced. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but let's say you are. I got a problem. How do I fix it? You can't. Really? At the end of the day, I mean, you, you sort of can because you realize that I have got to go to some source beyond me because when God says, return to me, 
I will cure you. He's not saying, return to me and then cure yourself. I will cure you. Now, there is something that we have to do. And even, even God talks a little bit more about this. He gets pretty graphic here. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. Circumcision is something that males received as a mark that they were part of this covenant family of God. It was bloody and it was painful. It involved cutting. It says you want to do something about this, you've got to get down to the heart. You have to cut it to the deepest level. At the same time, Jeremiah goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. We can't get deep that deep. God has to come in and do it. We, we offer a willingness, yes, and we do want to change, but it's God who comes in and cleans up. Otherwise, all we're doing is addressing the symptoms. Now, Tammy Rosenfeld's not here today. Those of you who are, receive all the updates probably know. She was in the hospital for 10 days, I think it was. Constant nausea and all the things that accompany it, and they're like, we don't know what's going wrong, which is just... Absolutely mystifying in this day and age, isn't it? All these tests and everything, and they've got her on all kinds of antibiotics, and they think it's working and it's not, and they're addressing the symptoms, but they needed to address the cause, and they're trying to figure out what is the cause, and finally they got apparently to it, the gallbladder. After nine days in the hospital or something, they got to it, and they, they took that gallbladder out. It was only 25% functional. It wasn't working right. And they took the gallbladder out, and within two days, she was back home. Now, she's got a long road to recovery, but apparently, they dealt with the cause. And that's what God is saying. Let's get to the cause. Let's get down to the deepest part of what's going on. Because until we do that, you're just addressing the symptoms. You can't cure it on your own. We've got this illusion that we can cure it on our own. Oh, I've got a new cistern today. That one didn't work. Or I'm kind of happy drinking dirty water, even though it's destroying me. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Jeremiah says there's another way. Only God is the one who really knows what's going on. He knows you. In chapter 1, very famous verse for those of you who are Bible students. Before I formed you, I knew you. In your mother's womb, who is it that you think can deal with your heart? How about the person who put you together? Who, who knows how you function? Who understands the true desires of your heart that you're, you're chasing after with broken cisterns? You want to get down to this? I will address the deepest part of what's going on. I know you. I knit you together. And so he says, I'm going to shine my spotlight into your heart and let's take a look. Because I can search it, I can examine it, I can cure it. It's almost like going to a physical. We want to avoid that for understandable reasons. It's a little unpleasant. I just prefer not to know, right? But in this arena, you say, okay, let's get down to it. Let's get down to business. God's going to say, okay, I'm going to give you a spiritual physical here. I'm going to shine my light into your heart. And what's he going to find? Do you think he's going to come out and say, clean bill of health, oh my goodness, you're the only person who's never had a problem. He's going to start shining a light and show the darkness of your heart. Mine, yours, everybody's. He's going to start, but he's not just doing it so that he can say, which I think some of us have fear, you 
are under my judgment. See the darkness. Now feel my wrath. He's doing that so that he can address it. Shine light into the dark parts and begin changing you from the inside out. He's going to find a lot of darkness. That's a guarantee. Nothing's hidden before God. So the only question is, how will we respond? What are we going to do with that? Jeremiah, along with the entire consistent message of God's word, says the only hope is turning to him. Return to me. He's the only one who can really deal with the deepest part of what's happening inside of you. If we allow him to search us, he'll show us that. If we acknowledge our waywardness to him, and I think the fear that we might have is, won't we be judged harshly when he sees that, when he shines it? Won't he be angry and disappointed? Isn't God just going <sighs> to, again? And, oh, I can't wait to pour wrath out on you because you make me so mad I could spit. And that's an image that we can have. I think even sinners in the hands of an angry God, you're like, whoa, dude chill out. Those Puritans were really uptight. And, you know, that's not us today. We're exempt because we're more enlightened. We don't have the same problems or issues. But if some measure of conviction comes on you when you hear that, what do you do with it? The good, the good news is when you read those high school essays and stuff, this is usually the only portion of that message you read. Burn, burn, judge, judge, wrath, wrath. And he doesn't end there. He goes on. To say, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you were in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? His appeal here is to say, there is an escape from that. There's an overwhelming flood of love that God has to offer if you will recognize that's your sin. And like Jeremiah is saying in these people, yes, we will return to you. We do stand guilty. We're tired of these broken cisterns. What do we do with that? Return to God. Because you will find in that turning to him an overwhelming outstretched arms of love saying my love is greater than your sin as great as that wrath my love is greater is God angry with us is God disappointed with us brothers and sisters this is why Christ came this is what faith is all about we're told that Christ came to take on that wrath to stand in our place to become sin for us literally in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin, he was perfect, to become sin for us. So that those of us who place our faith in him then, he's taken on our sin and now we're just right before God. The stain has been dealt with. And we're no longer guilty. 
That's the hope of the gospel. Our trust in that reality is what frees us from the penalty of our sin. If you ever feel like, if you ever felt like, man, this isn't fair. Have you ever been unjustly accused of something or you feel like you haven't been treated the same way as others? You're like, that's not fair. You get a tiny taste of what this transaction is like. Christ, who is completely free of sin, took on your sin and mine and everybody else's. He didn't deserve it. That's not fair. That's what we should be upset about. Why did you take on my sin? That's not fair. <laughs> but when you feel that sense, you get a tiny sense of what it's like. All that wrath, all that judgment, God poured out on, on Christ. First John says he's the propitiation for our sin. That's what it means. The just wrath of God against sin that Jonathan Edwards was talking about was poured out on Christ. He's the way of escape. But if you don't trust in him, all you're left with is the fear of what, what's been described before. You got your broken cisterns, you think that'll measure up? It's not going to. We all, the only hope we have is to turn to God. Is God angry with us? Is he disappointed with us? No. A thousand times over, no. Not if you're in Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there 0.0001% condemnation left for you? There's none. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Zero. It's been taken care of. It's dealt with. It's done. It's finished. You have no more fear of judgment and wrath. You're a son or a daughter. God is your father. He's received you with open arms. But you can't know that until you offer that first thing that Jeremiah said. Yes, we will come to you. If your heart's in a perpetual state of no, or if it's a yes that's half-hearted and just looks good on the outside, but you know inside you haven't really done that, all you have is a fear of judgment to come, according to what the Bible says. I mean, the smallest, yes, I know we're filled with some unbelief. And God sees that genuine nature is enough. Some of us are pretty good at covering it up. You know, Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet during this time, and we're almost done. There was, a, there, was another, there was another guy. There was another guy who was around at that time, Zephaniah. Jeremiah, Zephaniah. If you... Uh, if you read, you know, back in verse 2 of chapter 1, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to him during the 13th year, the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, which is exactly when Zephaniah was around as well. And if you read the book of Zephaniah, if you're reading with us, you read it. It's got a lot of unpleasant graphic imagery in it. All about the day of the Lord and wrath. A day when there's all kinds of judgment. And it's ever at hand. We don't know exactly when it's coming. It's the same thing Jeremiah does. Zephaniah goes back and forth with not just the same imagery, but some of the same concerns, alternating between the nations and Judah itself, chastising people who, he says, are turning back from following the Lord. They neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. He's talking about those who do not trust in the Lord. They don't draw near to God. And because of that, Zephaniah speaks a lot about the day of the Lord, a day which will be an ultimate overthrow of the created order as we know it, overwhelming wrath, none can escape. A future time not specifically known, but ever at hand when judgment comes. How will you escape? Is it even possible? And yes, it is possible, as you've seen in Jeremiah, but he offers that glimmer of hope too. How many of you have ever been spelunking? Raise your hands if you've been spelunking. Caving. 
Okay, just a couple. Where you go to a point where it's absolute darkness. Have you ever been into that type of thing where you can't see your hand in front of you? It's, so, it's that kind of darkness you can almost taste. It's incredibly unnerving. It's just total darkness everywhere. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, that's what I feel like. <laughs> especially in these moments. It's just dark. It's just dark. And then if you've done this, and you probably did it, you take a match and you strike it. Did you guys do that when you were there? Just that little mat, a little tiny, everything, everything lights up and you can see all around you. Just the tiniest little flicker lights up the entire darkness. And that's what these prophets are doing, saying there is a flicker of hope still in the midst of darkness, whether it's national or individual, always. God's always giving us a ray of hope. And even in Zephaniah, he does, as some of you may know, this verse, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is at the end of Zephaniah when all he's been talking about is darkness. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day... They will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's the hope. That's the light in the midst of the darkness. There is a God who is still with you, like that little flicker of light. And not just with you, but he's actually delighting in you. I mean, here's a God who's writing songs about you. You know what that's like when you first fall in love, if you've experienced that. Maybe nobody does this anymore. You want to write poetry, maybe if you're that kind of person. I, I don't know, a Snapchat story that just makes, shows you how awesome that person is. Or God is orchestrating songs over. He delights in you. If you're in Christ, he delights in you. It's not like he's just tolerating you. He loves you. He's writing songs about his children. Even in the midst of their fumbling and their failing, he loves them. That love is for those who trust in him. And yeah, it was written to Israel and Judah 2,600 years ago. But on that day when Jesus climbed Calvary and died on a cross, he took on the wrath of God. He reconciled those who have faith in him. And we receive all the benefits and the privileges and the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the Israelite under Ammon's reign, and all those promises, he says, are yes in Christ. Every single one. If we're reconciled to God through him, our way of relating to him is entirely different. So what we're dealing with here is sinners in the hands of a loving God. You've made that transaction there. You're sinners in the hands of a loving God. Yes, sinners. But God's disposition toward you is love. And John Calvin said this, the secret love in which our Heavenly Father embraced us to himself is, since it flows from the eternal good pleasure, precedent to all other causes. Before all other causes is the secret love of God for those who are in Christ. The true looking of faith is placing Christ before one's eyes and beholding to him the heart of God poured out in love. Does that doesn't sound like something John Calvin would say, does it? But it is, he understands, he gets it. The secret love of God is precedent to all other causes. That, everything else is flowing out of that. 
A true looking of faith is placing Christ before one's eyes. I mean, the not too distant past, I heard two messages uh, by pastors who were in their 80s, and combined, they had over 100 years of experience in ministry. And they both claim that one of the main problems among believers today, perhaps the central one, is that they just don't believe or understand God's love for them. That's it. It's not cell phones. It's not internet access. It's not rogue governments. You don't understand. You don't really understand the depth of God's love for you. So because of that, we create broken cisterns that lead to all those other things. That's, that's their argument. That's 100 years of ministry. That's not me. And we see this even in what Calvin's saying, and it does seem to be what the scripture is suggesting as well. It's a pursuing love, a forgiving love, a conquering love, a vast love, a never-ending love. We receive this love by faith at the beginning of our walk. We continue receiving it by faith in the middle and right up till the day we take our last breath. Some of us read A Praying Life this year. Paul Miller says, What is it like to know that no matter how messed up you might be, the good shepherd looks at you with love, surrounds you with his compassion, envelops you in his arms, and cares for the details of your life? Love begins not with loving, but with being loved. Being loved gives you the freedom and the resource to love. We can only give what we've received. Faith at its simplest is receiving love. Means you've got to receive that love. There's a posture of humility that says, I need it. And that's where Jeremiah starts. You're refusing to acknowledge that. Look at what you're giving up. If that's the state of your soul. It doesn't have to be that way, though. Because of Christ, you can know that God is with you. You can know he takes delight in you. You can know he'll quiet you with his love in times of trouble. And you can know that he's rejoicing over you. Even today, God's writing a love song. Christ in heaven, like, gee, what can I say about Daniel Peters today in a brand new song? Isn't he great? Yeah, he's messed up. <laughs> but he's my child, and I love him dearly. I hope you know that love. That's the opportunity. It's just a small yes. Father, I pray for my own heart, for other hearts as well. You do business with us. We wouldn't be too afraid of what it means to say yes, fearful of what might come, because if what Jeremiah says is true, all we have to gain is living water, and all we have to lose is broken cisterns. Give us the courage to say yes, we will return to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.